0: well good morning morning. so good to be with you here on this beautiful morning after a very very blustery evening wasn't it you all stay dry i sure hope well my name is adrian if we haven't met i'd love to connect with you after the service today we are going to conclude our study in the book of hebrews that we've been in throughout this summer Something greater is here. Someone, Jesus, greater is here with us now. Before we uh, conclude our study in Hebrews, though, I would like to just have a moment of prayer for our nation. I'm sure like you, I was deeply affected, um, brokenhearted, really, to see what's happened in Charlottesville over the past couple days. And... uh, I, I'm not going to speak about that at length right now, though I do have a lot of thoughts. I, I would like to pray though, with you if you would join me. Father, when we see the pictures and read the stories and watch the videos that we've witnessed over these past couple of days in Charlottesville, Virginia, our hearts break. Ours is a great nation, but it's one that continues to be deeply affected by old tensions and great pain and racism and so much heartache. So we call upon heaven when we're not sure what to do. Your word tells us to call upon heaven when we don't know what to do. And we recognize perhaps there is something that some of us must do, but we know that we all can do this, is come to you and ask for your help to our nation. Father, there seems to be a foment of anger, seems to be a foment of distrust between people that has increased over these past years. It seems that many people of color feel more marginalized today than they did even a few years ago, and for that, Lord, we ask your help. Father, we want to stand against oppression, we want to stand against racism in all of its vicious forms, and we know it goes many, many different ways, and we want to stand against it all, because we are, in this room, children of the Most High God. And we recognize in this room that we are all made in the image of God. You have paid each and every person the highest compliment, and we want to treat each other with respect and civility. Would you please help? Father, it's possible that even today some of us would, would need to admit to you we've harbored hidden prejudices. I have at different times of my life. And if that's true for any of us, we, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would forgive us and that you would change the trajectory of our heart toward Christ who says you want the world You love all people regardless of ethnicity or race or gender. God, would you do a work in us? We invite you now. And Father, we pray for officers who are caught in the middle of these things far too often, it seems. Put in harm's way. We ask, God, that you protect our police officers. We thank you for our officers here in Kearney, and we ask for protection on them as they seek to keep peace across our country. We pray for these officers who passed away yesterday. We don't know all the details to that, but we ask for your help to their families. We ask for your help to the police force there in Charlottesville. We pray for our government and our city leaders, that you give them clear mind and leadership and direction and humble hearts to lead with kindness and clarity. And we pray finally, Lord, for the victims of this terrible attack yesterday, the couple who have already died, the several that are in critical condition, the dozens that are injured. We pray for the recovery and for the help of the church to rise up for those families that are in such great need right now. Now, Lord, we turn to your word, thanking you, Lord, that you are eternal and your word is eternal. And in a time when so much seems unsure, we can be sure of who you are. We can be sure of the clarity of your word, and we can draw on it for our strength. So we ask for your help now with one voice in the mighty name of Jesus. And all of God's people who agree say, Amen. 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 Well, thank you for joining me in prayer for that. In our study of Hebrews, we have sought to open up, as I just prayed, the Word of God and ask the Word of God to speak to us. Many of us have gotten in the way of kind of following our own hunch about what should be related to God or what other people tell us about God or what the latest podcast or cable news broadcast might tell us. I love the way J.I. Packer, the great theologian, put it. He said, people have got into the way of following private religious hunches rather than learning of God from his word. He said that back in 1973. <laughs> How much more so in 2017. People have gotten in way of following private religious hunches about what God might be like rather than just going to God's word and receiving revelation from him related to his character. And so sometimes we'll do topical studies here in which we look at different topics that are relevant to all of our lives. But other times, and I'm so grateful that we got to do this this summer and we'll do it on a regular basis, we'll just kind of mark up a book of the Bible and say, word of God, speak. Challenge me each and every week. Challenge me to be conformed to your thinking. I invite you to correct my thinking. Has Hebrews challenged anyone in this room? Certainly has challenged me on many occasions. Many of us follow this hunch that people literally state, I don't want to believe that we worship a God like Adrian described last week, who demands my holiness. Many of us have followed followed this religious hunch that God is just all kind and all gentle all the time, and he really wouldn't be very demanding of us. I don't want to follow that. Then they say, therefore God is not like that. Conclusion. Interesting premise and conclusion, isn't it? No logic to it at all, but that's the way people are thinking today. I don't want to believe that, therefore he's not that way. Conclusion: No, we don't want to do that. That's bizarre thinking. People today have gotten in the habit of kind of making God in their own image, domesticating him, which I've found when we do that kills all motivation for prayer and worship, because if we domesticate him, we make him just like us. Well. I don't know about you, I'm just not all that motivated to worship what I see in the mirror at 6 a.m. Anyone else? Can I get an amen? Amen. Right, I mean like we don't don't find much in ourselves that's worthy of worship. We need something a whole lot better to worship. So last week what we talked about, this reality of holiness that God expects from us. And the definition that we gave is this. Holiness means to be set apart for God And from sin it has nothing to do with how we look it has nothing to do with what other people might say about us it has to do with this internal commitment that I want to live my life for God my life is set apart for him and I want to veer far from sin I want to move directly into the gaze of Christ We noted these two essential elements to holiness. The Father disciplines us in order to make us holy. Out of love, he brings some discipline. He wants to train us up to be like his son Jesus. And then we have a part to play as well, to give God our mind, to give God our heart, to give God our body, to give God our eyes, to focus ourselves on him, to discipline ourselves, to create new habits, to discipline ourselves that we would become more holy. So today we're going to kind of tag on to that message as we make an effort to speak of God's holiness, which leads to worship. I want to admit on the front end of this that all of our talk about God's holiness by nature feels feeble. Because God is totally other. He's great in a way that we never could be. The word in the Greek language is hagios. And hagios means... A completely set apart, pristine in character, totally other. And so we can like grasp at God's holiness, especially from the words of Scripture, but we recognize if he is totally set apart, our grasping will to some degree be a grasping. Leonardo da Vinci was commissioned, of course, to paint The Last Supper. And as he painted the Last Supper, one of the most famous pieces of artwork in all of history, apparently he had very little difficulty painting the entirety of this huge piece. And he went through it very quickly, in the matter of just a few days. And then he got to the faces, and they were the last thing that he was to paint in. And he went to the twelve disciples, and he painted in their faces as best as imagination could, could do, based on their personalities from the gospels and then he put his paintbrush down and he couldn't go any further. And he got stuck painting Jesus' face. And again he was commissioned to do this piece and so they're waiting for him to finish this piece And, and he couldn't finish it. And day after day turned into a couple different couple weeks of waiting to finish the final face of Jesus. Until eventually he did a few quick brush strokes to try to paint the face of Jesus, he put his paintbrush down and he said, it is of no use, I cannot paint him. That gets a bit at the sense of awe before the holiness and the grandeur of our God. Pull out your Bibles with me if you're not already there to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to look a bit at Hebrews 12 and 13 here today. If you don't have a Bible today, you'd be most welcome to pick one up for free at the access or the information table. That'd be our gift to you. Uh, you'll also find these verses though that I'll be reading up on the screen, but Hebrews 12 is toward the very back of the Bible, just before you get to the letters of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and the book of Revelation. And here we're going to see a passage, Hebrews 12, starting in verse 18, where Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to meet with God. And uh, there's going to be a comparison between what Moses experiences on Mount Sinai and what we experience at Mount Zion in the new Jerusalem with Jesus as our shepherd, between the old covenant that we've talked so much about and the new and greater covenant with complete forgiveness that is ours through Christ. Okay, Hebrews 12, 18, for you have not come to what may be touched. Okay, again, this is describing the portrait, describing the experience of the Hebrews at Mount Sinai. Moses says, I tremble with fear, but you might circle the word but in your Bible, you have come not to Mount Zion, but to I mean not to, to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new and, again, better covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now again, you might remember, though, that when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, He is trembling with fear, and what's referenced here is Deuteronomy chapter 9, where Moses literally says this, as I go up to meet with God, I tremble with fear. My knees are knocking before the holiness of God, probably for two good reasons. One, his people, Israel, have just fashioned all of their gold artifacts into a calf, and they've begun to worship it, rather than the living God who just released them from slavery. Okay? That might be one reason that he's trembling. But another reason is he recognizes the holiness of God, he recognizes, I am not. Now, the author of Hebrews is saying, we get to go to the eternal Mount Zion. That's code language for heaven. Okay, we get to go to heaven, we get to go to the heavenly Jerusalem. And as Christ comes down to incarnate the earth, as he dies for us, as he rises again in glory, and he promises, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I give you the Holy Spirit who will be with you always, guess what? Part of heaven has come down to us now as well. I mean, from time to time, I, I, I'll hear people say, I, I want to believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell when I die. That's a good reason to believe in Jesus, for sure. For sure. But guess what? It's not just waiting until we die. We get to experience the heavenly dwelling today because Christ is with us. Something better is here now through the Holy Spirit who is with us always. This is part of what is meant by the heavenly Jerusalem, Mount Zion. We are enrolled now in the book of life, it says. We are enrolled and we are numbered with, you might underline your Bible, We are numbered with the assembly of the firstborn. That's the assembly of Jesus. That's us. That's all who call upon his name. So it goes on in verse 25 to say, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If he's done all of this for you, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him in the old covenant, much less will we escape if we reject him. One of the the private religious hunches that people sometimes hold is because God's grace is so much greater in the new covenant that maybe God's holiness is somehow diminished. It's not. It's not. God's holiness, as you see right here in verse 25, is undiminished. We will not escape if we refuse him. He's offering his gift, offering his invitation But the standard of Christ's righteousness is undiminished. That's why we all must eventually do business with God. We say, God, is it going to be me on the throne or is it going to be you on the throne of my life? The passage goes on. Let's just skip ahead here to verse 28 and 29. It says, therefore, because of all this that we've just read, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be, be shaken the kingdom of Christ and the new covenant cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire our God is this consuming fire who longs for every person in this room to receive him to to worship him with reverence and awe to enter that eternal rest both for now and for all of eternity but he will leave us in the darkness of self if we wish the holiness of god is the stunning sense that god is both far more loving, far more kind, far more gentle, far more compassionate than any of us would ever be and at the same time he's far more truthful far greater standard, far more just, far more righteous than any of us would ever be. He's both of those at the same time and so we are in a very dangerous place in 2017 in our humanistic day of watered down sentimentalized Christianity when we begin to think of God as this poor weeping grandfather who just kind of taps us on our head no he's great he's powerful he's holy he's righteous and he invites us to come to him and do business with him. He calls us to account. Here's another little hunch that many people have gotten to the habit of thinking. I just need enough of Jesus to get me into heaven. Many people have gotten into the habit of thinking that Jesus is the one who kind of forgives our sins but then expects nothing of us. Have you ever heard of that? Or maybe you've been around people who just kind of treat Jesus as fire insurance. Raise your hand if you've heard of that. Okay, you ever been around that kind of person? That's not our kind of church. That's not our kind of church. I love the way Dallas Willard puts this. He coins this vampire Christianity. Vampire Christianity is getting just enough for the blood of Jesus to get me into heaven. No, that's not what we're about here, is it? treating Jesus as an insurance plan, getting a little ounce of Jesus' blood that gets me into heaven. No, Jesus invites us to worship him. Jesus invites us to be transformed by him. Jesus invites us, the great commandment, to love our God with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength, all that we have for all of your glory, Lord God. I mean, last time I checked, we're not gonna be transformed by an insurance plan, are we? Last time I checked, we're not going to worship an insurance plan, are we? If you are, I know some good counselors, okay? Well, that's not enough. God invites us to worship his son by giving all of ourselves to him. This is holiness to say, God, I, I worship you for who you are. Once again, 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16. Well, we noted this law last week. It says, just as you Just as he who called you, just as he who called you is holy himself, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. We're we're holy because we seek to follow Christ. So we invite his discipline and we seek to develop new habits in order to follow him because that is a right worship. These convenient hunches are a really big deal for a couple reasons. First, they turn the commandments of God into mere suggestions. They turn the commandments of God into mere suggestions. If God is all love and no holiness, at least according to our contemporary definitions of, of love, then the commands of Scripture turn into mere suggestions. The cross of Christ becomes meaningless, and the atonement Turns into a sick joke if they're mere suggestions. Second, they reduce God to less than God. They reduce God to less than God. If we can just use Jesus for his blood, just use him as fire insurance, and then do whatever I please, then, then he's not the God of the Bible. He's Santa Claus at best. He's an insurance agent. He's not the God of the Bible. They reduce God to less than God. And so we are wise to ask ourselves from time to time, who is the God that I am worshiping? Is it the God of the Bible or is it the God of my own private religious hunch? You look at chapter 13 and you'll see a number of verses here in chapter 13 that speak to a God who loves us just as we are but is unwilling to leave us as we are and a number of great reasons to worship God as he is you look at verse eight it says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever who else wants something that's stable in this unstable world this is a God that's worthy of our worship He is the same in 2000 as he is in 2017. He is unchanged yesterday, today, or forevermore. Verse 6 A God who says, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is my helper. I live before him alone. What can any man or woman do to me by their judgments? I live for him. And in his view, I can stand because I've been forgiven through the blood of Christ. This is a God who is worthy of our worship. Or how about verse 5? It says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Did you know that these words, I will never leave you, I'll never forsake you, in the book of Hebrews, are written in the context of money and generosity? Isn't that interesting? We quote it in all different kinds of contexts, and well, we should. But it's quoted here in the context of generosity and money and the fear of not having enough. What it's saying there is whether you have a little or a lot, whether you're well-fed or living in want, whether you have all that you need or you have way, way, way more, than you could ever want. God says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And therefore, you can live with an open hand with all that God has given. The flow of the author's thinking here is because God has given us so much, it's my delight to give out of all that he has given back to his purposes in this church, in the wider community, and across the world to God be the glory. Because if I lose a little bit, not lose. If I give a little bit, he will never leave me. He will never forsake me. Which frees us to live for his greater purposes as opposed to living for our pocketbooks. This is the generosity of God. Tie that verse to wealth and poverty and generosity steps up. We understand Christ plus nothing equals everything. And we have a God who is worthy Of all of our worship. You know, when Moses ventured up to Mount Sinai to retrieve those Ten Commandments, which weren't called Ten Suggestions, he pleaded to commune with God, didn't he? And as he prepared to lead the people through the wandering, through the wilderness, he's already led them out of the bondage of slavery. That wicked institution of slavery has led them out of the bondage of that. And they're wandering through the wilderness and he says, I need God. I have over a million people that are following me and I don't have what it takes. He says, I need need God. And he goes up once again to, to meet with God. And perhaps you remember in Exodus 34, he begs God for one thing. You remember what it was? Show me your glory. Show me your glory, and that will be enough. May I please see you as you are. May I please worship you as you are. All these people are looking at me, and I don't know if I have what it takes. I need to know that you, Jehovah, are with me. Would you show me your glory? And God says to him, Oh, you can't handle my glory. (laughs) He says, You can't handle the full measure of my glory. So cover your face, go down to the side of the rock, and, and I will make my goodness pass before you. Part of my glory will pass before you, but I can't show you my full glory. If you saw my full glory, you saw my full holiness, yeah, you wouldn't even live. But he gets to see a portion of it, and it says this, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. This is a Bible verse, though, that's worthy of our memorization. It tells us what the character of God is like. It says, he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the greatness of God, once again, as I just noted. The holiness of God is his kindness, his faithfulness, his love, his generosity, and yet it's also the judgment of God. The truthfulness of God. That he will not leave the guilty unpunished. This is the revelation of God in his holiness. There's a kindness and a severity in these words. And as Moses experiences the glory of God, what does he do? He bowed down at once, and he worshiped. Verse 6 says, he bowed down at once, and he worshiped. He fell down to the ground. He didn't say, Jesus is my homeboy. He didn't say, let me give you a fist pound God. He fell down onto his knees in authentic worship. Perhaps he fell down prostrate on his face. Perhaps he fell down on his chest. Friends, there's only one posture that we'll do when we encounter the greatness of God. You fall back. This is a clear portrait throughout the scriptures. Moses and Isaiah and the Apostle John, and the angels of Revelation, and Peter, and again and again, there are so many times in the scriptures that someone encounters a vision of God, and only one posture will do. They fall down. When was the last time you fell down your face before God? <laughs> Literally. When was the last time you said, I really give my heart, i I bend my my heart to you. I I mean, the posture sometimes can help because postures really matter. But more than the posture, it's a heart posture. Is my heart kneeled toward God? An awesome God provokes that kind of response. You get a sense of the awesome God. It provokes this response of authentic worship. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He loves us to the thousands, loves us across generations, and and yet he calls me to account. Oh, I bow before you, holy God. How how do you worship? Let, Let me tell you here as we conclude this series that worship is far, far more than what we do for 20 minutes on Sunday morning when we stand and sing. Can I get an amen? Amen. Worship is all of life. One day I'm going to give a message in this room, like five ways to worship God without singing. Or 20 ways to worship God without singing. There's a number of them listed as you go on and you read chapter 13 later on today. We don't have time to go through them all, but I encourage you to go on and read chapter 13 later today, but because it speaks of the response that we have as a result of seeing God as this beautiful, consuming, holy, loving fire. And it gives us a short list that says we worship God as we practice hospitality. As we practice hospitality specifically for strangers, we're worshiping God. It says as we visit those who are imprisoned, we're worshiping God. It says as we give, Out of all that God has given us, we are doing that not because we're told to, not out of compulsion, but out of worship, out of a God who gave it all. It says that when you pray for your pastors, when you pray for your elders, that can be an act of worship. Can I tell you that I know when you're praying for me, maybe not individually, but I can feel When our church is praying for me, the other pastors on staff need your prayers every bit as much as I do as well, I feel a different level of boldness, a different level of unction, a different level of we're in this together. When I know that our people are praying for our pastors and our elders, that's part of worship. Prayer. Singing. Feeding the poor. On and on it could go. You'll see a number of them there in Chapter 13, but it's so much more than standing and singing for 20 minutes on Sunday mornings. I got a letter a couple weeks ago from a gentleman in our church who went to an FCA camp, Fellowship of Christian Athletes camp, and he's actually gone through an internship with FCA, and our family supported him in that. And he wrote this letter of thanks to me and Susie, and I just want to read a portion of it because it's a beautiful portrait of worship and holiness as a young coach, he says, I've been told many times that the only way to move up in coaching is to cheat a little bit or to go out to the bars and drink with coaches until the bars close down. This was a huge concern for me because I do, not, because I do want to move up in coaching, but I'm not selling my soul out for that. Through FCA, I've been trained and met a couple other Christian college coaches who are very encouraging to me I'm excited to go out into the world to be a light and to use my platform in coaching to impact the world for Jesus Christ that's worship that's a decision I'm going to set my gaze on Christ and I'm going to follow him no matter what other people do And I will not offer to God that which requires nothing from me. And even if it means that I am not promoted as much as I would like, I'm still not selling my soul for it. I'm worshiping the God who demands my all. As we approach the awesomeness of God, authentic worship is the only natural posture in that example from revelation chapter one when the apostle john experiences the holiness of god he sees this vision of jesus he also falls to his knees he can't even stand but let me tell you what jesus does jesus picks him up off of his knees he puts his right hand on the apostle john the right hand of authority and he lifts him up and he says it's okay you can stand. And this is what he would do for us. He would pick us up by his right hand of authority and he would set our gaze on the cross and he would say, because I have paid it all for you, you can stand. You can fall to your knees in worship of God and then you can know that you can stand in his presence because the Holy One is greater than your sin. He has paid it all In order to bring us to God, the only response is that we would worship Him with all that we got on Sunday morning, that we would not sing with a flippancy, that we would give ourselves to Him, that we wouldn't come to church and say, Yet another Sunday, no big deal, that we wouldn't come into Monday morning and say, Yet another Monday morning, no big deal but we would see each and every day as an opportunity to worship the one who has given his all for us. Someone greater is here in this room. Someone greater is in the venue right now. Someone greater is here in your heart. Father, thank you. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you for all that you have given We thank you, Father, for the new and better covenant that wipes away every sin, that concludes every sacrifice, that gives us a new temple for the Holy Spirit, made not with hands or by the great ingenuity of any man or woman, but made by God himself, sealed by Jesus Christ. Thank you that we get to live with you. Lord, I pray that as we talk about the holiness of God and the right response of worship, no one would feel so intimidated by God that they couldn't come to him. That would be the wrong response. The right response is to recognize the holiness of God's great standards, the love that is poured out to us through Jesus, to fall to our knees, to repent, to ask forgiveness for ways that we have failed, to receive your forgiveness. And then to stand with confidence in your presence. Lord, we love you. Would you receive our worship right now as we declare with our hearts and our voices that someone greater is here.